Being Black in America comes with its challenges. However, we understand that enlightenment through education is the oppressor's worst fear. By bridging the gap between academia and the people, our purpose is to equip you with knowledge that breaks down barriers during your journey towards truth and freedom. Welcome to the Black and Highly Dangerous Podcast. Hey, Dev, how's it going? You know, it's it's going. I am right in the thick of field work. I, I thought I was going to be coming to my field site to, you know, just meet people, make sure I had permission. But like, I I hit the ground running, so I'm I'm pretty excited about that. That's um, good. Cannot complain. That's good to be hitting the ground running and getting worse. You've been doing like, did you get some interviews done yet? Or you're just doing observations? So I started with observations, but I actually have a few people lined up to do interviews before, you know, I leave my field site. So I I'm, I expect like maybe four interviews. Okay. So. Oh, that's good. That's good for week, yeah. week one. That's really good. Yeah. I'm like so totally excited. So nice. And then, yeah, so prepare as much you can. But yeah, when it comes to interviews, it's just like you'll get, you know, better as it goes on because you'll figure out what the themes are you're looking for and stuff. But that's good. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. So how's it going with you? You just finished your, what, your first week of classes? Woo, first week of classes in the bag, you know, <laughs> pretty busy. Um, it was a good first week, though. I Like I said, I picked up an extra class this semester. So I'm teaching four classes. Um, which is, you know, a lot, but yeah, uh, but yeah, you know, first week I survived and only like 14 more weeks to go. So <laughs> <laughs> what a little, what a little breaks here and there. You got, you'll yeah. have Thanksgiving and mm-hmm. maybe a fall break. Yeah. And... We get a fall break and Thanksgiving. So that's the only cool thing about fall semester is definitely like a break every month. You know, you get a couple of days off, but sometimes yeah. in spring you had that drought where it's like, whoo. <laughs> You don't have nothing wait, before wait. or after spring break. Waiting for spring break, so fall semester is always a bit easier. But yeah, other than that, just yeah, just other than that, yeah, just first week, so that's good. Cool. So far, so good with the students and stuff. Um, but all right, we got some oh lord news for this week. I'm sure. We do. Well, I'm doing a special Oh Lord News segment that is dedicated uh, strictly to Aretha Franklin's funeral. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. Let's get to this intro. I'm waiting to hear this one. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to BHD News, where we give you the most current and eye-opening Oh Lord News of the week. Join us as we present news that'll make you want to say... Okay, so there was so much going on at that funeral that like we will have plenty of oh Lord newsworthy moments. <laughs> okay, so the first one is so people were already tripping when they like put out the schedule for the funeral because it was supposed to last from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. That's like five. That's already long. Mm-hmm. But when I tell you the funeral did not start until 11 a.m. Okay. And it did not end until 7 p.m. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness you know the funny thing about that is like you know just 
growing up in church, like myself, you know, that is just things never starting on time and definitely never ending on time. The kind of long drawn out services that was Ooh, very, yeah. very <laughs> much uh, like that, that kind of situation for sure. Did you watch it? I was, I was, when was it? It was, uh, it was Friday. Friday. I was, uh, oh yes, I was teaching all day, but I was like catching clips and seeing all the statuses and the memes and everybody posting it. But I, I wasn't like able to sit down and watch it in its entirety. Okay. Well, there were plenty of memes of people taking naps. Everybody from the violinist who was like, <laughs> you know, behind like the major people in the, in a uh, pews mm-hmm. or the pulpit. As well as Bill Clinton, he even dozed off once or twice. I bet he did. <laughs> I can't blame nobody for dozing off at an eight-hour service. I hope folk had snacks because I would have been home. Oh, I would have been <laughs> 10 to 3. <laughs> we went from 11 to 7. That's, 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 that's just crazy. <laughs> okay. Second. Mm-hmm. So there was a bishop who was caught on camera oh, man. groping oh, man. Ariana Grande's breast (laughs) he like and it wasn't just like once or twice he did the little squeeze i saw it with my own eyes i saw it too i saw the clip on instagram uh, oh my god i was like what in the world (laughs) i guess nobody taught him how to do the church hug you know the little church hug hug, hands on the shoulders bro like just put them up (laughs) goodness man I'm like what are you doing and it was like okay you know maybe it's just that weird position but yeah he was getting too close and then the squeezing and the moving I'm like bro and she even looked down like what's What's going going on on, man now there was a lot of controversy about this because before that happened people were like kind of going in on her outfit like oh nobody taught her how to dress in a black church and stuff like that but I just want to say that nothing she wore would excuse that behavior so I you know I did see people trying to say well oh maybe she shouldn't have worn that maybe black mm, no trying to say what she's wearing no. again oh blame the victim yes. kind of situation come on people the church says come as you are yes okay man. You don't have to deal with Amen. that. <laughs> oh. Okay. Now this one kind of really upset me. So there was a Reverend Jasper Williams who, you know, had to give like a, a speech. You know, he wanted to, you know, rouse the audience. Well, he thought her funeral was a good time not to talk about respect, but to talk about respectability politics. Mm. Listen to a quote from his speech. He said, if you choose to ask me today, do black lives matter? Let me answer this. No, black lives do not matter. Black lives will not matter. Black lives ought not matter. Black lives should not matter. And black lives must not matter until black people start respecting black lives and stop killing ourselves. Black lives can never matter. Like until that happens. Oh my goodness, man. Come on, bro. That's too much. Really? It's too much. Really? First of all, we can walk and chew chew gum at the same time. Like we can care about black lives. Cause he said, like, oh, black people not pro like, you know, black people want to protest when it's like the police, you know, killing a black person, but they don't want to protest. They don't, you know, we don't hear anything when black on black crime happens. But that's just it's false. It's false. Yeah. We talk about that too. Yeah, yeah it's crazy. And I mean, come on, man. And why, first off, step one is 
why are you going to use Aretha Franklin's funeral to discuss this, you know, and then yeah. and in front of a whole bunch of black folk and you talking about their lives don't matter. Come on, man. Right. right. Uh, and so another thing that bothered me is that like he started because that was kind of the end of like a little anecdote. Mm-hmm. He started it talking about like giving statistics about like the number of like Ku Klux Klan members or whatnot that had killed black people. And then he went on to say, well, the number of black people who kill black people kind of dwarfs that. Like, first of all, Aretha Franklin's funeral is not the place for this because she was a civil rights, you know, advocate. Mm -hmm. You know, she wanted to bail. um, Was it Angela Davis? Mm-hmm, out mm-hmm. of jail did you see that yep, yep. yeah so it's just kind of like her funeral was not the place for that sir yeah that's crazy trying to use trying to promote your own political trump agenda they just try to get they just try to get mm-hmm. a seat at the table with trump with all <laughs> we gonna see him on fox news so yeah we gonna see trump <laughs> using him in a speech you know Yes. Talking about his speech. yes we raised black vote by five percent or something like every time he say <laughs> Mm-hmm. But speaking of trying to get on the Trump agenda, this last one is related to both uh, John McCain's funeral, which happened on Saturday, and Aretha mm. Franklin's funeral. So, do you know who Chuck Woolery is? Nah. Okay. No. Okay. See, you, you, you a young buck. Okay. <laughs> Chuck Woolery was this game show host. Like, he's on so many game shows, like Love Connection. Like, he's still on a game show network, this, like, game called Lingo. And so, like, okay. I grew up, like, hanging out with my great aunt who watched all the game shows. So, I kind of, like, grew up on him. So, our older listeners, they'll probably be very disappointed by this. But he's definitely on the Trump train. So, oh, no. he, um... He said that Aretha Franklin's funeral and John McCain's funeral, uh, that they were disturbing and distasteful because, you know, he said there was too much pomp and ceremony. Mm -hmm. And then, um, you know, people were making a big deal about the fact that President or former President Obama, Clinton and Bush were kind of together in a show of unity. Well, to that, he had to say, He tweeted this, all in the same church today, Obama, Bush, Clinton, Trump has accomplished more in less than two years than any of you could or did. And without much help from your holier than thou establishment. (laughs) Okay. Bye, uh, bye, Chuck. You're canceled. Yeah. You're canceled. Yeah, definitely canceled, bro. Come on, you man. ain't even know who he was, but he's still canceled. <laughs> he's can't. I didn't even know who he was. Like I said, that, yeah, that's that's before my time, but definitely won't be looking for this brother, man. But for like our parents and like some of the older people that listen, they will definitely know, and they know not to look at them game uh, network shows that ha- still have him on there. Yeah, I mean, and it's something something strange with some of these older black um, black men. So I think it was not too long ago that, well, last week, Jim Brown was on, on the Trump train too, you know, the famous football player. From yeah, that, which is disappointing. And Tiger Woods, you know, was passing praises to Trump as well, uh, which is also equally disappointing. I'm like, what's going on here, man? Is it the money? You know, the money, you just forgetting about everything else because you get to a certain class, to a certain area, and you just like... Trump all the way. I'm confused. I don't get it. And Jim, the funny thing, the interesting thing why Jim Brown upset a lot of people because he was, especially during his time and his life, has been pretty vocal against certain things and about blacks and our rights and stuff like that. Yes. That's what makes some of this like disappointing. Um, Mm -hmm. But, you know, sometimes it's easier to like 
get back in the spotlight or even even to gain notoriety when, you know, you want to go against the grain and like, Sometimes it's easier to be the Kanye or the Candace or Paris Denard. It's easier to be them and make your money mm-hmm. than it is to be somebody that's like on what I call the righteous side. You yeah. know, you you might not get as much attention, but then Paris Denard, then something just happened to him where he had to step down and they fired oh, him. Oh yeah, yeah, he got accused of like sexual harassment or assault or something. I I haven't read all the details. <laughs> <laughs> You're crazy. <laughs> I haven't read all the details, but yeah, he had to like step down. We'll we'll make mm-hmm. sure we fill y'all in on the tea later. <laughs> mm-hmm. And Kanye West apologizing too this past week. That's yeah, I saw one. that. Like three, four weeks late, whenever. No, three, how long was it? Like, oh, that was, it was probably, months. yeah, it's been a while ago. Yeah. He apologizing late and people at, talking about his, you know, debating about his apology. You know, how genuine is it? Um, so whatever. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> but all that stuff kind of dominated my news cycle. Um, have mm-hmm. you heard any uh, news lately that you think is either BHD uh, worthy or old Lord news worthy? Um, no, I didn't hear any crazy news, but I did hear, which will bring us into, I guess, our topic for today. Um, with our, we have a special guest, Dr. Julie Parks, um, with the news circulating around Harvard's affirmative action case dealing with, um, its Asian American students and applicants. Uh, there was a few reports that came out. Uh, one in particular that I picked that was in one of the New York Times, where it's just highlighting how the Justice Department has lent its support um, this past Thursday to the students who are suing Harvard University over affirmative action policies. Um, and so, you know, affirmative action has been something that we have discussed over the past maybe couple of decades uh, when mm-hmm. it comes to higher education. And of course, it works in other types of job places, too. Uh, but mainly a lot of discussion has to do with higher ed. Uh, with, with people fear with this kind of f- false allegations of black people taking up spots from white people, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so because this came in the headlines, I think, you know, there's a perfect opportunity to air um, Dr. Park's interview because this is exactly what she studies. Oh, yeah, man. she's an <laughs> expert on this topic. Yeah, yes. And I, I can't remember whether we know, you know, in an interview, but I just find it interesting because the person who actually spearheaded this lawsuit was not actually those students. It was someone who raises money and has a lot of money to uh, file lawsuits uh, to overturn like historic like civil rights um, cases. So it's just kind of like peep, there are people who raise money just so they can get cases to go to the Supreme Court to overturn things like Roe v. Wade or the Voting Rights Act. So y'all might not know this, but yeah, there's a lot of things that go behind the scenes when it comes to these types of cases. Mm-hmm. And I just, you know, I think it's sad and interesting. So. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot to it. Um, there are people, even when I was at Purdue, there was a guy, I can't remember his name, but he pretty much, him and his law firm just made made his money. They're living off of pretty much trying to sue schools who they feel like are attacking, you know, freedom of speech. Mm, but the, yeah, the catch yeah. was that they were really when schools would be trying to stop hate speech. This is when they would come in and be like, oh, that's that's attacking their freedom of speech. You can't do that. And then <laughs> so they the only school. take up for hate speech. Yeah, they only really take up for the hate speech. Um, you know, when schools were, you know, denouncing that and either kicking out students or punishing students for doing racist things. Um, 
and they would come in and try to sue the schools and, and they won a couple of big cases. And now it got to the point where when schools see them, they automatically don't want to pursue it any further. They kind of like give them what they want. So yeah, yeah, there are people who are working against, you know, those kind of, that kind of progression for sure. Um, yeah. One thing we uh, do want to note before the interview begins, and Dr. Park will also note this in the interview, is that while she did serve as a consulting expert for the president and fellows of Harvard College in connection with the matter of students for fair admissions versus Harvard, the views that she expresses in this interview are her own. They don't reflect Harvard's views and they don't reflect any information that she learned about the case when serving as an expert. So just want to put that out there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yep, no, that's a good note. And I think, you know, she says it again in the interview as well, that, you know, everything we talk about is from her perspective and her opinion and from her own research and not based on the cases. So. Yes. Cause she, like we said, she's an expert and we're going to talk about her book. Mm-hmm. She, she has all the knowledge. So. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. This is the person to talk to about this very topic. Um, good. So, and before we get into the interview too, a uh, couple quick announcements for the congregation. <laughs> um, one, <laughs> last week, I forgot to tell y'all that uh, we now have our podcast on Spotify. Okay. So mm-hmm. anybody who has Spotify, any of you or friends may not have iTunes, may not be on SoundCloud or Google Play. I know everyone can also download Spotify and that's a pretty much wide reaching app. So Tell people that we are now on Spotify as well. Yes. And also, uh, we want to start doing something new. We want to get this a shot. Uh, Daphne and I were talking. And we feel like it would be cool to say maybe once a month, probably towards the end of the month, maybe our last episode of the month, how we did our current events episode a few weeks back. We like to start having our listeners on with us. Maybe we'll choose one listener each month to join us for a current events episode where you get to sit down and you get to jot down some topics. We'll jot down some topics and have you on air and come talk to us about current events and your perspective, your opinions, whatever it is, experiences, and uh, have you join us once a month to talk on BHD. So in order to do that, all we ask is for you guys to reach out to us either through social media at BHD podcast or email us at BHD podcast at gmail.com and let us know you would like to be a part of the show with us. And then once we could compile a list, we'll start choosing people and we'll hit you up and then we'll have you on to be on the episode with us towards the end of every month. I think it'd be something fun and have you guys continue to engage with us. You guys have been supportive. So we want to make sure that you get some time on the air too. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So yeah, so hit us up with that and we'll keep you updated how that goes. And we can start it this month in September. It's the beginning of September. So hopefully we'd like to get you one of, one of you off on this month and have you on the last, ep- the last Wednesday and talk about current events for the month of September. But other than that, let's get into this episode with Dr. Park and uh, we'll catch up with y'all afterwards. In recent years, affirmative action has reemerged as a hot topic in the world of higher education. However, debates about race and affirmative action in higher education are often clouded by myths and misconceptions. Today, we focus on the facts and have an open conversation about diversity on college campuses by interviewing Professor Julie J. Park, an Associate Professor of Education at the University of Maryland College Park. Dr. Park is an expert on race, class, and religion in higher education and examines inequality in educational opportunity and campus climate for diversity. Welcome, Dr. Park. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. Yes, we're happy to have you. Yes, yes. So we typically start our interviews by asking our guests um, to just introduce themselves to the audience. We want to know more about you. So, you know, 
Who are you and what motivated you to study racial diversity, equity, and affirmative action in higher education? Sure. Well, who am I? Wow, that's kind of an existential question. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> I am. Uh, I'm an associate professor, right, at University of Maryland. Um, I am a second generation um, Asian American, so Korean American. My parents came over, and I was born here in the Midwest, actually Ohio. Um, and most of my family lives in Southern California now. And I am also a mom and a partner. Um, I have a nine month old son who keeps me very busy and makes me think a lot of about a lot of different questions um just thinking about the type of world that um we're creating for him. <laughs> um, and so how did I get interested in studying race, diversity, um, and affirmative action in turn? I think questions around race actually, you know, do hook back to my bio because I was, I grew up, you know, one of very few um, Asian American families in this suburb of Southwestern Ohio. And so from a very early age, I was asking questions, I think in my head, even though I didn't have the language about, oh, why is my family different? right from other families or what does it mean that my parents you know kind of act one way in one setting and then we might go to a place where there are other immigrants and they act differently right so what what does that all of that mean um and really the thing that gave me language to understand those experiences and then in turn made me interested in race conscious admissions was um, my college experience. And part of that also hooks back to my biography because um, I didn't even know about Vanderbilt <laughs> University at all. Um, and I think Daphne, you're a fellow alum. Um, which Let's is go VU. Yeah, yeah. Well, I had. No Did you know about Vanderbilt growing up or in high school very much? Um, I only knew because I'm from Chattanooga, Tennessee, oh, and we okay. took a college tour to Nashville uh, during my ninth grade year. So that's the only reason why I knew. Sure. Well, Vanderbilt was not on my radar at all, but I went to a camp, a college visit in high school just because I wanted to get out of physics. And I remember looking through the brochure and they said, you know, they listed different scholarships. And one was the chancellor, what was then called the chancellor's minority scholarship or something like that. And they listed the groups that applied. And what stood out to me was that Asian Americans were on that list. Um, and that was unusual among sort of, you know, your top 20, top 25 schools. And so kind of on a lark, I applied and I actually, amazingly enough, got that scholarship. Um, and so the, the, reason why I actually ended up going to Vanderbilt was because I was a beneficiary, a direct beneficiary of affirmative action of a race conscious um, scholarship program. And so later on, as I became, began taking classes and asking questions, um, yeah, that experience sort of gave me a lens, I think, from the beginning to think about, you know, at the time that I was there in, you know, the early 2000s, Vanderbilt was a much less racially diverse campus um, than it is today. Um, and it was a really challenging campus climate. Um, and so I think that was what sparked my interest in beginning to study race um, in higher education. Once I found out that was something that people actually did, that you could actually go to school to learn that and, um, you know, get a job as a researcher or as a faculty member. Um, and then also in the early 2000s, when I was in college, that was around the time that the University of Michigan cases were going through the courts. Um, and of course, that all culminated in 2003 with um, Grutter and Gratz. And so seeing the role of social science research and what it 
the role that it played in those cases made me really interested in the idea of being able to do research that looked at, you know, the experiences of students of color or looked at the impact of different policies and with the hope that that research could be useful to someone. And so, yeah, my life has kind of come full circle because now I do that research. Nice, nice. It's always nice to hear how people's, you know, life uh, journeys led them to the, their their career paths and, and what they do currently. Um, and also how even that that time period of, like you said, what was going on in Michigan and stuff like that, you know, current events just also piqued your interest in that and, and then continue to light that fire um, in that direction. So that's pretty cool. So for our listeners, why why should people be concerned? with the issue of racial diversity in higher education. Why is that important? Yeah, uh, it's important for a lot of reasons. I mean, one is just the fact of the matter that we all benefit from racial diversity in so many ways. Uh, There's a very established body of research that talks about the benefits that people gain from being able to um, engage with people who are different from them as long as it's in a supportive and positive environment, Um, you know, because of the historical legacy of segregation in this country, we oftentimes haven't had the opportunity to do that. We know that K through 12 schools are segregated. There's still a high amount of residential segregation and we have, you know, a continued um, economic and racial wealth gap in this country that continues to keep people apart. And that's really unfortunate because we have so much to learn from each other. And so really, um, besides, you know, there's sort of one line of thinking of that there are these actual benefits to learning, to um, being able to develop critical thinking, to being able to understand viewpoints, um, an issue from multiple viewpoints. And those are all things that are linked with engaging with a racially diverse student body during college. And then there's also the social justice imperative that we want um, our colleges and we want our students to be prepared for to for citizenship in a diverse democracy. We want to prepare leaders who can reflect the diversity of the country. And we know that we have many historical dynamics um, that have really kept people from coming to the table. And so for all of those reasons, uh, racial diversity remains so important just because people need to see themselves. It's not good to be, you know, the only one. Um, And when you have, you know, different groups together, you can begin to understand the richness that exists even within those groups and the differences that can exist within racial ethnic groups themselves. Mm, I, I completely agree um, with what you just said. I, I know when it comes to topics about uh, race and higher education, that there are a lot of like myths and misconceptions around, um, again, race, admissions, you know, its importance. And I know you actually have a forthcoming book <laughs> called Race on Campus, <laughs> Debunking Myths with Data. Uh, and I love when we can debunk myths with data. Yes. So we don't want you to give us all of, you know, what you've said in the book, but can you talk a little bit about some of the myths in higher education? Give us a teaser and then everyone can go out and buy the book. (laughs) (laughs) Great, great product placement. (laughs) 
Sure. Well, you know, the media is rife, right? And public opinion is rife with you know a lot of assumptions or perceptions that people have about the state of race in college campuses. And so I know I oftentimes hear comments like, you know, diversity is counterproductive because what use is it to bring all of these students from different backgrounds and they only stick to themselves? Um, or the idea that affirmative action isn't necessary because it only helps rich minorities. And, you know, these are lines I hear all the time. And, you know, when you ask people, you're like, well, what makes you think that? They'll, they might say, well, I saw it, right? And it's like, okay, well, you're one person. Why don't we actually go into what the research says on these topics and these issues? And so the entire premise of the book is that each chapter has a different myth. And so the early chapters actually deal with that um, issue of perceived rampant self-segregation, the idea that our campuses are just stubbornly and persistently divided by race, that there are practically these like race wars on campus and that students never interact with each other and they're not engaging with each other. And so what's the point of diversity? Um, and so I take that and I try to flip it on its head by saying, actually, <laughs> from the research that we have, students are actually engaging and interacting quite a bit across race and especially students of color, the groups that are accused of this so-called self-segregation are the ones that have the highest levels of interracial interaction. They're the ones that have the highest levels of interracial friendship. Um, across different institutional settings. And so really drawing on research to help people understand like, okay, well, you might have some observations, um, but that doesn't necessarily tell the entire story. The other dynamic of the book is that I think is kind of fun is that I try to go into actually why do people how do people form these misconceptions in the first place? And so I actually draw on research from psychology and cognitive science on cognitive biases. And so this is kind of playing with some of the um, some of the research findings that are really fun from the field of behavioral economics, um, psychology, et cetera, that actually explain that our brains like we don't know what we think we know, <laughs> or we think we know things, but we actually don't know things because our brains are basically susceptible to tricking ourselves. In the words of Dan Airely, who wrote this great book called Predictably Irrational, we are wired basically to stumble and to assume that we know more than we know. And so with each chapter, I draw on some of the research on cognitive biases to unpack well, why do you think it is that people have these certain misperceptions? Um, and so, um, yeah, with that, hopefully it can help readers reflect on, you know, where are my observations or my assumptions coming from? Um, you know, am I drawing on more than an N of one myself and my own experience and my own opinions? And what does actually the established body of research say on these topics? Ooh, that sounds like an awesome book. I can't wait to, to get my hands on it and check it out and read more of that kind of stuff. Um, and I think it's going to really answer, it is answering a lot of questions that um, come about when we talk about these kind of things, especially, you know, just, I think like what you said, as far as, you know, the self-segregation aspect, I'm um, thinking, as you were talking, I was thinking while when I was at Purdue and just trying to say like, is it, can that be the case? And when I'm like, yeah, you know, a lot, I did have friends that were outside of my race and I was more likely to attend events that probably catered to them more so than it would cater to what I'm used to. Um, and then I'm like, then I thought about like, how often did I see them come to events that were, you know, 
black dominated or primarily black students or whatever, and they never would come, right? They just never be present in those kind of settings, but vice versa, I would be present in other settings, whether social settings and stuff like that, where I may be, you know, the only one in minority and, and, and mingling in that way. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm really interested to see more and read more about that. Uh, and so, you know, talking about affirmative action in college admissions, you know, we know, like you said, even from like the Michigan t- cases and stuff like that, it's been a hot button issue. So can you provide some insight into affirmative action within the higher education context? Pretty much how, for our listeners, how does race or how is race used in admissions? You know, we talk, people probably hear things about like quota um, versus like holistic approach. Um, so can you just, you know, tell our, inform our listeners about that a little more? Sure. Um, Yeah, there are definitely a lot of misconceptions about how it works. And so this is a great question. Um, Yeah, oftentimes people think that there are quotas or requirements, and those things are actually absolutely illegal. And they've been illegal since the late 1970s. And so anything that universities are doing is not is nowhere close, right, to anything like a quota or a cap or a ceiling. Because if any university tried to do that, they would get, you know, it would be so cut and dry illegal, right? Um, how is it actually used? In general, I mean, there is no one size fits all way. It tends to be a very um, sort of flexible type of thing. But in general, the idea of, you know, race conscious admissions is that Um, readers are allowed to know the race ethnicity of the applicant um, and they're allowed to take it into account as one of many, 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 many factors that influence just their understanding of who this applicant is. It's not allowed to be applied in any sort of formulaic measure where it's like, oh, you get an extra five points because you're black or something like that, or you're getting docked five points because you're Asian American. Absolutely not. That is just, you know, um, straightforward illegal. (laughs) It's not allowed to happen. Instead, you know, just like in understanding someone's life experience, you might want to know, it might be relevant to know their gender, or it might be relevant to know their social class background, or what type of high school they went to, or whether they had textbooks growing up. Um, You know, in filling, in allowing readers and evaluators to get a good picture of this student and what they may have experienced, and also what they have potentially to contribute to the student body, is just allowing that reader to know what the student's race ethnicity is. Mm, mm, that's um, I feel like that really dispels some of the myths um, because I've seen a lot of arguments um, because we have a lot of cases, uh, the UT uh, case that happened recently. And of course, there are other cases. And it's often this idea that there is some type of quota. So it's, I'm happy you kind of put that out there. That's illegal. If anyone yeah. did it, they would be in trouble. Yeah. Um, I will say that looking specifically, like looking at the UC uh, system as an example, uh, recent critics have argued that using race uh, in admissions results in discriminatory outcomes for high achieving uh, minority students, particularly they uh, often cite that Asian American students are disadvantaged when it comes to uh, being able to use race as a factor in admission. And like from your like professional opinion, you know the data, you've done a lot of research. Can you just give us some perspective on this argument? To what extent do these policies potentially disadvantage Asian students when we think about how the UC system demographically, it has changed quite a bit since 
you know, uh, they voted to uh, opt out of using race in admissions at all. Sure. So are you asking me about whether it hurts Asian Americans in the UC system or just more in generally in selective college admissions? Um, I would say more in general in selective college admissions. I was just using UC as an example to, to where they say like, well, look, when we don't use uh-huh. uh, race, look what happens. Like, but um, when we do, you know, it's keeping a cap on uh, what do you like? Um, students who, yeah, deserve a spot in those schools that aren't getting them because we are using race as a factor, if that makes sense. So just the question is basically, do I think there's systemic intentional discrimination against Asian Americans in selective college admissions, right? Is that your basic question? Yes. Or is there more to the story and why we might not, and why we might see that increase when we don't use race versus just, yeah, I I just, I'm trying to get a better picture because that's an argument to say that like, if we did not use race as a factor, our colleges would demographically look very different than how they are now. And so I'm really trying to understand like, yeah, is there more to the story about like why we might not see while we might see the like, I guess, demographic breakdown that we do in some of the selective colleges that use, you know, race as a factor. Yeah, is yeah, and yeah, also essentially are Asian American students being discriminated against in a process that takes race into account? Like, is there any credence to that argument? Okay. I think I'm gonna focus on that question because I think that gets to sort of the meat of what you're asking is, is there systemic intentional discrimination? And so before I answer, I have to go on the record with a disclosure that um, I was an expert consultant in the current pending case of um, Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard um, on the side of Harvard. Um, I'm not consulting for them anymore, um, but everything ended fine. Um, I'm trying to remember what else I'm supposed to say as far as disclosure. All opinions and views expressed here are mine, and I'm not sharing any information that I learned um, during the course of my engagement with Harvard. And so um, lawyers, they always want you to say that stuff. (laughs) So basically, (laughs) I work with the case as a consulting expert. I'm not a consulting expert anymore. Um, All views are my own. And my view that I'm going to share is that with all of that and with all of my knowledge and with all of my research, in a nutshell, I don't see evidence of systemic discrimination against Asian Americans. Um, In selective college admissions, I don't see it at Harvard. with the case. I can understand some of the reasons for why people might think it is um, in different ways, but I think a lot of those misconceptions boil down to misunderstandings of how selective college admissions works in general. Um, And so I think especially, you know, with the Harvard coverage, you definitely hear stuff like, oh, well, if they were just relying on Uh, meritocracy, then Harvard would be 40% Asian American. And it's like, well, their definition of meritocracy is your SAT score, basically, and maybe your GPA. And that's ridiculous, right? Why would Harvard admit just on the basis of SATs and GPAs, right? Um, 
And so it's a very narrow definition of merit versus the idea that an institution like Harvard wants to look at, you know, the entire student and how students, you know, don't come. It's not a one size fits all thing where your test score defines who you are. And so just to use an anecdote, um, from my suburban Ohio high school, I can think of like about four people who went to Harvard sort of around the time who were admitted from it. Three out of the four were Asian American. None of them were the valedictorian. None of them were even the salutatorian. They were all like somewhere probably in the top 10, but none of them were at the absolute top, right? Um, and these are Asian Americans <laughs> who went to Harvard. And so from the lawsuit, you know, there are a lot of allegations of um, you know, these, you have these Asian American students, they have great test scores, they have great GPAs, they read to the blind and the elderly, and they do great things. They're not getting in. How could that be? Well, what the lawsuit really fails to dwell, go into is that Harvard is rejecting 95% of applicants across the board. And the way that the selective college admissions works, especially at this most competitive level, is that your test scores, right, even having perfect test scores, there is no test score that guarantees you admission. Now, to go back to, I think, what you were trying to ask, what I'm picking up is, you know, the example of the UC schools, and I, in the in the lawsuit, they use the example of Caltech, and they're like, well, Caltech, um, Caltech is like, I don't know, has a much higher Asian American population, right, than Harvard. It's like maybe 30 or 40%. I don't know off the top of my head. And it's like, why isn't Harvard, you know, this is evidence that Harvard is discriminating because it doesn't have as many Asian Americans as Caltech. And it's like, well, they're different schools, right? It's Caltech, right? Caltech has different uh, has a different demographic composition than MIT. Even um, you have different schools; they have different priorities and profiles of you know how they're evaluating students. Um, and so, admissions is never a one size fits all thing. Now, with the UC system, in thinking of oh, did the percentage of Asian Americans go up right in with the ending of race conscious admissions um, due to Prop? 209. Um, and that's a complex story. Um, and in some ways, yes. And then in some ways, no, I'd have to go back to the data. Um, but there are, there are years where there are spikes. And then there are years where the population is fairly level and you don't always see these huge increases. Um, yes, you do see, you know, um, you definitely saw a dip in underrepresented minorities. Um, but in terms of, you know, does this mean that if everyone was like the UC, the Asian Americans would have the most to benefit? And I would say, no, I don't think so. Um, if anything, Asian Americans have a lot to lose when you don't have underrepresented minorities at these institutions because students aren't getting the fullest education that they could be getting. They're not getting a they're not being able to experience a student body that's anywhere near representative of the demographic composition of California. Um, California is a really complicated, interesting, special case. Um, but with California, I think you see that at the same time um, that the California system has come out strong and saying that it's impossible for them to have any real sense of diversity or level of diversity without race conscious admissions. <clears throat> and it's really interesting we um are, are along that like with these recent cases and discussing kind of what does it what does merit mean right well, you mm -hmm. know and and 
I think that definition can change. Um, and sometimes it does change depending on the comparison population. You know, I think for the most in the most basic sense, people look at merit when talking about higher education, especially like who who is worthy to be in college. And it's like GPA or standardized test scores. And then you see maybe some other schools privileged kind of less tangible qualities that are not kind of based so much on those formalities. But when we talk about people being able to meet these criteria, what can cause or, or, or what may impact a student's ability to meet these things, uh, these particular measurements for merit of getting into a college? And are there differences when we talk about race uh, and meeting merits or reaching merit or getting merit? Getting, you know, reaching that more <laughs> narrow definition of merit, which would say standardized test scores, especially. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Um, And that's actually a chapter of the book that looks at, um, you know, there is some, the common line is, well, not everyone has access to things like SAT prep, et cetera. And that certainly is true um, in terms of inequities in access, where especially upper income students um, are more likely to have access. And then we know that um, especially East Asian Americans have a high level of participation, um, in part because the ethnic economy really supports these types of sort of of homegrown bred SAT prep centers. Um, and it becomes almost this normative and expected behavior like, hey, everyone is doing SAT prep. You have to do SAT prep too. In the book, I talk that about how there's actually some research that points to not just inequities in access, but inequities in the benefits that students gain from SAT prep. And so even when students, you know, regardless of background, take SAT prep, um, there have been a few studies that show that Asian Americans are um, the only specific racial ethnic group that um, gains sort of a, a statistically significant benefit in their scores um, from participation. Interestingly enough, um, and Kaplan and Princeton Review won't like this, but contrary to the idea that everyone gets like 100 to 300 extra points from SAT prep, um, the body of research shows that the overall gains on average are actually a lot smaller. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's somewhere in between like 10 and 30 or 40 points. Oh, wow. Um, that's Derek Briggs research from um, the University of Colorado. He's done really important work. Um, and if you buy the book, you can see the citations. <laughs> um, so anyway, so not everyone is benefiting even when they take SAT prep. And why is that? Um, and in the book, I go into some of these reasons about how I think Asian Americans experience some complicated socialization around the importance of standardized tests. Um, and I don't think there's any magic, anything magical. Um, we also know from the research that students that are already relatively high achieving um, do better, benefit more from SAT prep. So students who have high prior academic preparation. And so when you kind of put all of these pieces of the puzzle, we know that on average, certainly not for all Asian Americans, but that Asian Americans on average are more likely to have better access um, to high quality or higher quality K through 12 public education. Um, We know that they benefit from some, um, the, um, Margaret Shi and then also Jennifer Lee and Minzo are sociologists who have documented um, sort of this phenomena of stereotype lift or stereotype promise. Um, and Jennifer Lee and Minzo talk about the success frame, which is this 
sort of series of expectations that a lot of East Asian Americans are socialized into, even though not all East Asian Americans do great at school or anything like that. So anyway, these are all some of the complex factors. And I talk more about the book to um, talk about some of the reasons um, why Asian Americans might be gaining from SAT prep when other groups aren't gaining as much, even when they participate. And so the conclusion I come to is that, um, yeah, SAT scores even aren't one size fits all, right? You're not always comparing apples to apples because number one, you have different groups that have a much more like higher likelihood of um, being able to take prep. And then on top of that, you have certain groups that are more likely to benefit from prep. Um, and so it's it's complicated, right? Because different students are going in with certain advantages um, or are more likely, right, on average, um, to receive um, payoff from SAT prep. And so all of this goes to say is that test scores don't always, you know, they a good test score can show great things, but at the same time, excellence comes in other packages um, than test scores. And I have a quote in the book from Condoleezza Rice, right? Um, and so regardless of what you think about her politics, um, I think most people agree that she's a pretty smart lady. And so she talks about not doing very well on her PSATs um, and how that experience made her suspicious about um, the validity and the reliability of standardized tests. Um, and so I think I, I can get on board with that. Um, just being a test take, good test taker um, is not the end all be all. I, I agree. And yeah. uh, when we reflect later, Ty, I have, a, I have a story to tell about a very bad testing experience I had. But <laughs> that is not necessarily, you know, doesn't that's dictate where you end up. <laughs> but when we um, so in thinking about like the factors that you just mentioned um, and thinking about like a larger pic, uh, picture about equity, fairness and the purpose of higher education, because you, you, you spoke about how, you know, a lot of uh, selective schools um, and other types of schools, they have different missions. So when you think about like the purpose of higher education, equity and fairness, you know, what criteria should we be, should we consider when we're admitting students to college beyond the, you know, GPA and standardized test scores? Because we know about those, but, you know, what what contributes to our larger purpose of, you know, why we created institutions of higher education? Sure. That's a great big picture question. Um, and so, you know, to go back to, you know, John Dewey and other people who are writing on sort of what is the purpose of education, right? Um, and questions around, uh, you know, right now we live in a climate where it's it's very like degree and market focused, right? You go to school so you can get a job and you can make money. <laughs> and while that might be one uh, positive benefit, um, we have to remember that the entire point of education is to have an educated and informed citizenry, right? Um, that we have this democracy, this thing called democracy that is hopefully still alive. Um, and, you know, the ability for citizens to be able to participate in a democratic society is contingent on, um, you know, them being able to receive the training to do so, um, and education is supposed to open up the mind, right? Um, and to help people ask new questions to, um, 
you know, do innovative things and hopefully for the service of humankind. And so in thinking of what traits colleges should look for, I would say things that indicate that students are um, interested in living lives of service, of um, excellence, demonstrated excellence, and that can look very different, um, passion, um, commitment. I know that um, we have a local, I was just reading my local paper and they talked about, um, there was a local high schooler who's Korean American um, and she is admitted to Harvard. And um, I was reading about her and she's art. she's written like three, you know, she's written like multiple plays and they've been like performed off Broadway already. And, you know, one was, is being performed at the DC Capitol Fringe Fest, which is something that like, people in their 30s or 40s would aspire to do. And so I was like, you know, that's just not a fluke, right? She's not just doing that to put it on her college application. Like this young lady has a fire. Um, and so, you know, finding the students, right, who have that passion um, and providing an environment, hopefully, for them to do even bigger and better things, um, I think are some of the things that um, admissions officers should be looking out for. Mm. I just have to say really quickly, that was such a like a education comprehensive exam question when you brought up you, <laughs> you brought up I was like, okay, this this is taking me back to comps, but <laughs> um yeah, so going along those lines too of of you know, even like you said, fostering an environment. Um when we talk about, you know, racial diversity and inclusiveness on campus, and I think a part of the conversation is even while I was in graduate school, it was like the issue was um, Purdue did a good job, pretty good job at recruiting um, students of color, uh, but did a terrible job at keeping them there. Retention rates and stuff like that were a big issue of concern. Um, and, you know, from the narrative of a lot of students of color, one of the things they felt was that, hey, yeah, we're here, but we don't feel like we belong here or this place is for us. They didn't feel included in the campus environment. And so when we talk about, you know, fostering racial diversity, yes, creating practices to get uh, increased diversity. Um, but what can be done to, you know, increase that uh, experience of inclusiveness or having students feel that they're a part of the community? Are there any practices that we may, you can maybe give advice to or about? Yeah, um, there's a great body of research on, you know, the different things that institutions can do to promote a sense of belonging on their campuses. Um, and so sort of the old school research on how do you get students to stay and flourish in college talked about this idea of like integration, like the students, um, and this is Tinto's sort of uh, landmark work um, that has sort of been challenged in different ways. And so this idea that the student like really has to fit, right? They have to fit with sort of the mainstream dominant culture of the institution. But as our institutions got more diverse, right, that approach doesn't always work for everyone because number one, you know, what is the dominant culture? And then number two, you know, what happens if a student doesn't fit into that? That Do, do we just say, sorry, like it's this place isn't for you. Um, instead, I think, you know, institutions have this juggling act of sort of allowing students to find their niche on campus um, and their, their sort of that subculture of campus where they might find connection and a sense of belonging. And while also balancing that, hopefully, with some broader ways that 
those communities can all feel connected in some ways to say, hey, everyone is a Commodore or everyone is a Terp at the University of Maryland. Um, so really, I think it has to come from all angles, you know, with the curriculum, with the curriculum making sure that students have many opportunities um, to be able to learn about diverse populations and not sort of just in a token way, but in, you know, in a systematic and um, important way, right, that can help students understand, you know, some of these hidden histories um, that have influenced pretty much every field or every profession. Um, it comes from certainly the um, the co-curriculum, right? The activities and the organizations that the institution is able to support. Um, absolutely, demography matters. We have a lot of research that talks about, you know, this engagement across different racial ethnic groups is sort of the magic ingredient that helps a lot of these benefits uh, that are linked with diversity that helps them get off the ground. But at the same time, students of different races can't interact with each other if there are not students of different races to begin with, right? It's it's a no-brainer, but you would be surprised at how, um, yeah, how institutions sometimes hope to kind of have this magical climate for diversity when you don't have many students of color to begin with. Um, so those are some of the different angles of the campus climate framework um, that Hurtado and colleagues um, pioneered. Um, and, you know, you see other things that really encourage me that campuses are doing, for instance, looking at the historical legacy of inclusion, of exclusion, excuse me, of exclusion. If there is one of inclusion, too, that's great. Um, but, you know, going back into history and understanding, you know, what is this institution's track record when it comes to different populations and how does the past shape the present? Um, so those are all things that make students from different corners of campus just feel that they are seen, heard and valued. Mm -hmm. Quick question, too. Do you um, I know in some some campuses and this conversation of diversity and when schools and universities are developing like core curriculums and trying to figure out, you know, what are some classes that everyone should take? And, you know, and so in some cases they talk about. Um, taking like a diversity class or a class on racial history and stuff like that. Is there any evidence to suggest that that would be beneficial um, for like first year students, whether you're a transfer student or, you know, a freshman and having to take a, a class on like diversity and, and things of that nature? Yeah, there is um, some research, I think, that looks at the impact of curriculum and of um, taking ethnic studies classes. Um, and so that is, yeah, certainly something that can have a positive impact. Okay. Okay, nice. Thank you. Um, so that was um, a really informative conversation. Yes. I really enjoyed it. Um, did you have anything else you wanted to add that we didn't ask or? Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, I thought of another thing when it, when you were asking about the UC system and Asian Americans, you know, um, that I forgot to mention, when you look at sort of the figures from year to year and it can seem like, oh, there has been this growth, this notable growth of Asian Americans um, in the post Prop 209 era, right? So when race has been banned in admissions. But a lot of that does coincide with the overall population growth of the Asian American college going population, right? And so when you're comparing year to year, you're once again, not always comparing apples to apples, because you might have a higher, you do have a higher percentage of Asian Americans who are college eligible, um, just because of population growth. See, that's why you got to pay attention to the data, people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
got the numbers. There's a larger story, a larger picture. Um, mm. But I, I agree with your overall point that California is also a very different place. Um, I lived there for a little bit and it's, it's a very different place um, in terms of just the demographics in general. Mm. Um is there a place where people can learn more about your research or reach you? Like, are you on Twitter? Do you tweet? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I am not on Twitter. Believe it or not, I actually have um, what I believe is generally called a dumb phone is my uh, <laughs> I know. It's amazing. But I do have a website. I do have websites. <laughs> um they can go to juliepark.wordpress.com. Um, I have a lot of stuff. That's just a personal site, but I have a lot of um, work uploaded there. And then if they just Google Julie J. Park, um, I think my faculty website pops up. Incidentally, there are actually two people named Julie Park who teach at the University of Maryland. I saw that. <laughs> yes. And the other one is the director of Asian American Studies. Um, and she does work that's, you know, it's different. But if you didn't know better, it, you wouldn't really know the difference. And so I'm Julie J. Park. She's just Julie Park. Okay. Good to know. Uh, yes. And we'll provide links uh, to that as well so that there are no mistakes. But I did see that. I was like, wait, that's not... That's not the picture I remember. He's <laughs> <laughs> different. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you. This yes, was thank really you. awesome. Yeah, no problem. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Thanks. All right, Dad. So what you think about Dr. Park's conversation? I, I thought it was really good. So I focus on race in education and, you know, mm -hmm. diversity mm -hmm. in education. So, of course, this was right up my alley. Um, and I, I thought the interview was just really informative. I feel like there are so many misconceptions about, you know, affirmative action, diversity and all of these things in higher education. So I was really happy that she kind of put it out there. Quotas aren't a thing. It's illegal. Yeah. Like, so, yeah, I just think there are too many misconceptions about this topic out there. So I'm happy that we were able to have a expert. She is an expert, y'all. On this topic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that, that's uh, one of the things I truly appreciated too, really just getting out those misconceptions because we all know anything that looks like it's about to help people of color, it's always some conspiracy. <laughs> it's always the issue. Oh, LeBron opened up a school. Go ahead. Here they go. You know, it's oh always God, yeah. crazy. Yeah. So, you know, it, 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 I'm glad that we have people actually doing real research with real data to say, hmm, these facts or these assumptions that you're making don't align to what the reality of the situation. So always love that kind of stuff. So, yeah, on that note, like, again, speaking to the importance of data, your experience as one person cannot be generalized to the entire thing. Your experience is important. It is a data point that we should take into account, but we can't generalize based on anybody's one experience. Mm, you better preach. <laughs> I, you know, I try. <laughs> uh, I would say another thing that I appreciated about the interview uh, is about the discussion about merit and what it means and how how, you know, test scores aren't necessarily, you know, an indication of everything. I'm not saying we should throw that away um, because, well, I don't know, because some research says it doesn't, you know, mean anything. So I, I can't I can't say whether we should or not, because I, I, I haven't looked at the data to form my opinion. <laughs> but what I can say is, like, I had a similar experience to Condoleezza Rice. So 
when I went, when I was preparing to go to graduate school, I was like so dead set on like proving that I made it into graduate school not because of like my race, but that I had the high test scores like any other group. Like that was something in the back of my head. I don't know why I felt like I needed to prove that. But I, I built that up so much that you know, when I tell you I was working full time and I would get off work and I would study for the GRE like every every day in mm. the evening. Even before I went into the test to take the GRE the first time, I was still looking at flashcards like I was studying for like a a math exam in high school. Like I knew what was going to be on the test. Mm. And um, I don't know. I got in there and my brain was fried. I did not even complete the the full section of the math. So like I only made it to like question 10. It was 30 questions. Mm. And I just I just wanted to see what the score was. I, I didn't end up sending like this to any schools, but child, I didn't even crack a thousand. <laughs> <laughs> and it wasn't because I was not smart. It's not because I wasn't capable. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like I was in that test thinking about like how this was going to be an indication of how smart I was. And that's stereotype threat. And we'll, I'll link an article on that. So I was so focused on like trying to disprove these stereotypes that I couldn't even focus on the test. Mm-hmm. And so I did retake the test. I actually retook the test like um, two weeks later. So that was in March. And I ended up taking it in April because I was like, I got to prove to people that this was just a fluke. So I'm going to take it back to back. And so I took it again in April. And I actually did. I got a very good score. But I didn't study at all leading up to that test. I was like, look, anything will be better than that first score. So I don't even care. So I just retook it. I didn't study and I got the score that I originally wanted and I never took it again. Thank God. (laughs) That's good. And hopefully you never have to take it again. Shoot. Oh, no, no. Shoot. Uh, But test scores don't necessarily dictate how smart you are. You know, there are a lot of things that can happen during a test or before a test that could impact someone's score. Yeah, that's I mean, that's that is the truth. Um, I think with my thinking about my standardized tests, I don't even know SATs, GREs, whatever. I never scored anything high. I mean, average at best, maybe even a little bit below that. I can't even remember my scores, but they were never anything impressive uh, that'll make your head turn and be like, oh, wow. Um but it didn't, you know, determine or predict how, what kind of student I was going to be, you know, because as a student, I was good academic. I excelled, you know, my GPAs were always high, um, whether it was an undergrad, grad school, et cetera. Um, so it doesn't really predict your academic performance of what you can handle as a student. And even like you said, taking the test, how you didn't finish the questions. Sometimes people don't realize it's not even about like what you know, it's about just being able to like strategize and taking the test, like mm-hmm. test taking skills, like, okay, how much time should you spend on the questions? How should you pace yourself? Just mm-hmm. timing yourself um, is a big factor with these standardized tests because you are time. You do have people watching and you can feel that pressure. And so, so I think probably even for you going the second time around, because you already took it the first time, you're like, okay, you experienced it. You know what it was like. You were more prepared in that realm. And this is probably one of the reasons you also seen it at a higher score too, because you were actually able to get to the questions and even just pace yourself out better. And if you're yeah. not taught, if you're not taught those things, you know, mm-hmm. if you have nobody shown, like she said, prep works for some, does normal for some, doesn't work for others. Some people don't even get to get it, but these are the kind of things you learn in those prep classes too. Not just like how to answer, get the right answer. 
Yeah, it's about also finishing the test. Yeah, like you said, pacing yourself. Because that was my thing. I was just like, just complete it, just finish it, and you'll for sure do better than you did the first time. <laughs> so. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say the last thing that kind of stood out to me, I appreciated your question about inclusion and, you know, colleges being a place where like um, where people feel like they belong. And I appreciate uh, the the tips um, or the the strategies that, you know, university settings can like think about when it comes to ensuring that students feel welcome on campus. Um, I know for me, when I went to Vanderbilt, like I'm from the South, so I'm, I'm probably far too accustomed to like microaggressions than I should be. But I would say, yeah, there was a lot of that type of stuff on campus. And I would say the one thing that sticks out was how, when I was an undergrad, there was this like dormitory called Memorial Hall. Everybody thought it was just Memorial Hall. And then we found out it was Confederate Memorial Hall. <laughs> oh, man. And the black folk just was like, nah. Yeah. Went I can off, imagine. tried to petition to get it like uh get the name removed. And I think it was just like that was probably like 2005. I feel like it was just removed, like maybe like maybe a year or two ago because they ended up like going through litigation and stuff like that because the daughters of the confederacy was like no we we you know we want the name on the building or you're gonna have to pay us you know this amount of money but i remember that yeah that's why we need hpc that's a yeah (laughs) and that's a big um thing i'm on the diversity inclusion council for my school and our one of our big missions last year was um to address the name of a building of a dorm Mm-hmm. And because the guy's name who was on it was linked to like being a slave owner or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, it's a dorm. Of course, everyone lives there. So it's mixed races live there. Uh, and this is like this debate of, you know, we had to have host these town halls and do a write up and get the history of it, make the connections. And it's this debate like, uh, you know, people are like, well, it's funny because, you know, from the students of color, they're like, listen, now that we know this and where this links to, you know, we sit here, we have to eat here. We have to walk in this room every day, understanding like what this person did to our ancestors or, you know, participate in that kind of oppression. And so it was, you know, understandably so discomfort. And then on the other side, you would hear people saying, uh, well, and I'm just going to nothing but white folks. Um, <laughs> and, and they were, they were saying like, well, it's history and it needs to be protected. You know, just because somebody doesn't like something about history doesn't mean we should just erase it and forget about it. Then how can we uphold history? And this kind of goes against that whole argument too, when they're talking about statues and stuff and what we're seeing <clears throat> and how it makes people feel and what it represents. Um, and so, you know, of course, majority of the students and faculty and stuff wanted to change it. And so we're moving to do that. But people from the community outside, it was very interesting, their, their take on it, right? It's like, oh, let's discard the students that actually lived there and what they experienced because it's a part of history. It should never be changed. Um, yeah. But students actually, I was very impressed during the town hall because students actually combated it very well. And they're like, yo, listen, um, there are places where you keep historical items and you preserve history called museums and it doesn't <laughs> have to be a dormitory. <laughs> Like, hey, hey, clap to you. <laughs> you know, it's so true. It's so true. But also, it's kind of like, so it's history. We mm-hmm. cannot forget. 
Because if not, if we forget, we will repeat it. But the issue is we don't have to honor certain part. Like you don't have Mm -hmm. to honor people that did really bad things. And, you know, that's been a debate on Harvard's campus. They actually, I think two years ago, dedicated a building to two um, African, um, African Americans or enslaved Africans who actually worked for, I think, one of the presidents or something. And so they did a dedication because there are a lot of universities now that are just reckoning with, you know, we are who we are because of the work of people that were not honored, that were not paid, that were not respected as, you know, human beings. So it's interesting how that's, a you know, becoming a topic on a lot of college campuses. Yeah, it definitely is. And so like, and, and, you know, and that's funny because I always, the comparison, even when these debates were going on, it's like, especially when it comes to black folk and our history here in the States, how people are so quick to just try to tell us to get over it. But if someone were to like name a building of uh, Hitler or one of his generals, you know, and expect people from the Jewish community to live there. Would that ever happen? No. Or have statues that represented that kind of stuff. Would that be acceptable? No. But yeah, when we have the same or even more trauma, because it was way, way, you know, the, the World War II, not taking anything away from it, but it was only just a handful of years versus hundreds mm-hmm. of years of slavery and oppression mm-hmm. and generations of what we experienced. And so, yes, yeah, seeing a statue that represents that is going to be even more problematic and traumatic to us than it probably would be somebody who has connections to the Holocaust and stuff like that. And one student actually gave a really good, he was from a country in Africa, I can't remember. And he talked about in his, in his town, there was this issue with, um, with Gandhi, a statue of Gandhi, and, you know, globally, mm-hmm. you know, people love Gandhi and stuff like that. But the way he, uh, certain, certain situations happen. I think definitely dealing with sexism and then some form of oppression within that community he lived. Gandhi didn't represent that for the people that lived there. And so it was like in the community, everybody understood why they took it down. But of course, outside of it, everybody was like, what, this is Gandhi. And, you know, he did no wrong and stuff like that. And it's just like, people just have to stop looking only through your lens and put yourself in, you know, the shoes and, and try to get yourself in perspective of other people and see where they're coming from. Yeah. Uh, Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, keep pushing, keep fighting for that change, people. And oh. once again, we appreciate Dr. Park for taking out the time to come talk to us about her work, much needed work on affirmative action and racial inequalities in higher education. Um, and, you know, uh, for those of you who haven't followed us yet, you can follow us on social media at BHD Podcast or on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. You can email us ideas, questions, whatever it is. We always respond phdpodcast at gmail.com visit our website www.blackandhollydangerous.com also if you haven't as soon as you in this recording stop go ahead review rate us right afterwards don't waste no time if you haven't done it on itunes all right and they continue to share us with your friends your families and your enemies and as always continue to be the oppressor's worst fear If you're interested in continuing this and other conversations, visit our website, blackandhollydangerous.com to subscribe to our email list, suggest topics, and participate in our discussion forums. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at BHD Podcast. And please don't forget to subscribe and rate our podcast on your favorite platform. And as always, continue to be the oppressor's worst fear.